Hi, this is Derek and Andrea with our kids, Dax and Otis, owners of Loon Lake Lodge, built in the late 1920s, located 39 miles up the Gunflin Trail in America's coolest small town, Grand Marais, Minnesota. Going into our fourth season, our goal is still the same, to raise our family close to nature and share this beautiful piece of wilderness paradise with our guests from around the world while keeping our log lodge and cabins as original as possible. Along with eight original log cabins, we serve breakfast and dinner every day during the summer, and we often feed boundary water paddlers before and after their boundary water trips. There's something magical about the Gunflint Trail. It draws people from all over the world because there is something for everyone up here from primitive camping to luxury cabins and several amazing resorts, outfitters, and restaurants to choose from all of which are tucked into this pristine Northwoods wilderness where anyone can experience the crisp fresh air, the starry nights, the northern lights, and best of all, the silence. What we provide here at Loon Lake are original log cabins with full kitchens and bathrooms, free canoes, kayaks, and paddleboards for our guests, and fishing boats and a pontoon to rent, plenty of firewood and fire pits for our guests to enjoy their s'mores under the stars, breakfast and dinner at the lodge, and endless nature to explore and silence to experience. For a lot more info and pictures, go to visitloonlake.com or give us a call at any time at 218-388-2232. Loon Lake Lodge is happy to support the Boundary Waters in this podcast. This is the WTIP Boundary Waters podcast. This is the wilderness that Dave and I were both introduced to as kids. You know, our first wilderness camping experiences were in the Boundary Waters. And in summer, you wake up, you swim through the lake, you have breakfast, then you can relax, you can go paddling, you can go hiking. We've done this trip before to Horseshoe Lake, and I remember catching walleye there before. I went on a canoe trip in the Boundary Waters and it's, it was really cool, it was my first time. The route from Ram Lake back to Poplar Lake with, with no packs, with, with only a day pack, uh, we take it in one day. Well, you can look to Venus, you can look to Mars, I will set my sights by the northern star and in the deep dark blue come the northern lights. Oh, and in the deep dark blue Welcome to episode 11 of the WTIP Boundary Waters podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Baxley. And I'm Joe Fredericks. It is November on the North Shore and in the North Woods. On the podcast today, we're going to be talking to a fella who spends over half the year in the Boundary Waters. We're calling him the 800-day paddler. And speaking of November, if you've never been in the wilderness in November... It's a pretty intense place, wouldn't you say, Joe? <laughs> it's It can be challenging, yeah, uh, on many fronts, because in many aspects, actually, Matthew, and our, our own firsthand accounts of this experience, January can be easier to get around in the Boundary Waters than November can be. Now, explain that, Joe. So, in January, you've got a deep freeze. Things The lakes are frozen. I mean, you can still be dealing with currents at some of the flow areas in between the lakes and rivers and so forth in the boundary waters but you're pretty confident that the ice you're traveling on 
that you're not going to be bringing a canoe, for exactly. example, in January. That's You can write that off. I don't need a canoe on this trip. But in November, you don't know if you might need a canoe, if it's safe to ski or snowshoe on. November, you don't really know how you're going to get around. I mean, that's the first thing on the trip. How are we going to get to the campsite? Uh, exactly. And I'm even thinking in regards to precipitation. Uh, in January, you're going to get snow, definitely. Uh, and you'll be dry because the snow is frozen. But in November, you could get snow, rain, sleet, hail, thunderstorms. Yep, you could get anything. And it just makes it that element, too, makes it even more challenging. November in the Boundary Waters. Arguably, uh, November and April are probably the two most challenging months to get around in the Boundary Waters. And today on the podcast, we're going to hear... From two people who are very familiar with November recreation, people who go into the Boundary Waters, and from their own personal experience as well. We're talking about Claire and Dan Shirley. They're the owners of Sawbill Canoe Outfitters up at the end of the Sawbill Trail. So I look forward to, you know, they had so many insights to share that uh, I, I think it's a good one to get out uh, here in November and, and share that on the podcast today. Indeed, and I just would like to say that Joe and I had a personal experience going into a Boundary Waters lake. Uh, we encountered ice on the lake, and we took his aluminum basher and yeah, the basher. bashed <laughs> our way through that ice. And it was quite the experience. I'd say uh, one that everybody should have at least a chance to experience. <laughs> yeah, and so imagine if you woke up at a campsite in the Boundary Waters and you had a solo Kevlar or a Kevlar canoe, you and a friend or whoever you were with, and that was the situation you woke up to, it'd be challenging. I mean, even with the heavy aluminum canoe, the old Alumacraft, we were having a tough go getting through sometimes. There was maybe a half inch, three quarters inch of ice at times, and our paddles were bouncing off the ice as we tried to break through. So it's it's serious stuff. It really is. If you woke up at a campsite and that was the situation presented to you, It'd be some problem solving going on, that's for sure. Yeah, exactly. So Claire and Dan are going to dive into that topic. Uh, but before we do that, let's hear from... Mark Zimmer, 800-Day Paddler. I have the pleasure of sitting across the table from an amazing human being, at least what I've gathered thus far, Mark Zimmer. We've been calling him the 800-Day Paddler. Uh, and I think that is appropriate. Mark has been spending the last four summers traveling the Boundary Waters extensively uh, in his solo kayak. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thank you. <laughs> it's great to have you. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you've been doing out in the Boundary Waters. Well, I just kind of go out there in the spring and hang out for the year you know each season's got its opportunities for different things different food and i guess uh being out there the whole summer you get to enjoy it and appreciate it all so you travel north uh anticipating ice out and get yourself out there as soon as possible is that the idea absolutely so yeah. so what it what is your goal what's your goal when you get out there well, you don't necessarily really have a goal. I mean, I mean, the goal of pretty much everybody each day, I guess, really is just to eat food and then you kind of relax, you know, and 
you make the best of it. You know, I guess I like to go out and explore different areas and find different things. You know, each area has got different opportunities for um, to take advantage of. So, you know, you kind of just check out the different areas and see what you can find. When you say check out different areas, uh, you're really attuned to um, the land in a unique way. Uh, you do a lot of foraging, uh, fishing, and other ways to uh, sustain yourself when you're out there. Can you tell us about that? Well, the more you know, the less you have to carry, you know, which is the biggest part about it. Um, you get more greens in the spring, and then as the year kind of goes in, you you know, you get more fruit and stuff like that, you know, which is always nice. And then fall comes, and you still get, you know, cranberries and nuts and stuff like that, you know. So, I mean, each season is different, you know, so you kind of got to sustain yourself in different ways. But, I mean, it's really great, and... You know, the fishing is great. You know, I mean, typically when I come up here, fishing opener isn't, isn't open except for along the border. So then I shoot up to the border right away because uh, fishing's open. And, you know, when you're trying to sustain off that as much as you can, you go where you can do the stuff. Awesome. So you're sustaining yourself through uh, your knowledge and your abilities uh, for food. What, explain your setup, your, what you take with you, your kayak, your, your gear. Can you just give us a little overview? I want to picture what what you have with you when you enter so in my backpack i guess basically i got my my shelter which is my hammock and my tarp and you know my guy an under quilt and a top quilt um and then i have a frying pan which i spoil myself and i have like a 10 inch frying pan and it's like two and a half pounds but you know what you don't <laughs> yes. you don't want to sit and cook fish for hours you right know? um and then i got a little pot um and then, you know, utensils and stuff like that. I made a little spatula like six years ago that I've actually used it ever since. So that came in handy. Something you carved. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. So and then, you know, hatchet and a saw I bring both with. Yeah, I got a camera and binoculars. And, so, you know, I got two solar chargers because that's why I charge everything is with my, my solar chargers. And then I got one battery pack that I bring with. I've, I got a lot of stuff really in that little backpack. Um, and then my other bag is just food that I bring with, and I try to take as little out of there as possible. The less I take out of there, you know, the longer I can go without having to resupply. Right. Um, so I think to describe you as a, a minimalist would be pretty accurate. I mean... You could, uh, other you than could, the camera. <laughs> you could say minimalist. I mean, I, I have I have what I need, you know, and I, I guess I don't need anything more than that, you know. So minimal maybe, but I definitely, I mean, I don't, not over-consuming. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's kind of how I look at it more as being a, you know, a, a minimalist per se, but I understand. So kind of, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm picturing you, you've got your two packs and your, what kayak do you paddle? It's a 12 foot, uh, it's a dagger access. It's a flat bottom kayak and it's got a skag on the back of it, but, um, I don't use it because it's not mechanical. Um, it's just on a string. So then when you paddle back and forth, it goes clunk, clunk, clunk. And oh, sure. the last thing you want to hear on a nice calm day is, you know, something annoying like that. So I just leave it up and never, just, it's not really a problem. Um, the Kevlar canoes don't have a keel on them nowadays anyways. So it's, you know, pretty similar. Right. Yeah. So you're, you enter with a kayak. And, you know, I was thinking about this and just wrapping my mind around the, the, the logistics of being in the Boundary Waters that long. How do you portage that kayak? Which, by the way, I can see atop your rig out the window right now. Yeah, I just uh, I take a bandana and I fold it up and put it on top of my head. And then I got a hat that I put over the top of that and just carry it right on top of my head. So and, uh, just flip it upside down and... 
flip it upside down, yeah, and then uh, I got kind of a technique where I grab onto the, the rib on the um, top and then my other arm goes on the bottom of it. And when I'm flipping it, you can kind of use that momentum to keep yourself going and actually kind of flip it and start moving at the same time. So, you know, you just kind of stay with the momentum and, you know, make it make it work with you. Right. Yeah. So you're, you enter the Boundary Waters in the spring, you've got two packs and your kayak and you're alone and you're going out there foraging, fishing. What's a typical day like out there for you? That's great. You know, I mean, once I, once I catch a fish, the rest of the day is pretty much free to do whatever I want, you know? (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, there's, I really don't set out goals for any specific day or anything like that. I just, I like to search different areas. I never try to get to a certain point in one day. Um, I used to do all that. And when I first came out, because it was nice, because you get to experience more of it. But then, you know, as you kind of go out and, you know, you slow down a little bit, you know, that's really when you're experiencing more of it, you know. So it's it slowed me down, and I guess I just... I take my time now and I try to enjoy all the shorelines and I, you know, try to search around inside the woods and, you know, there's, there's so much, so much more to see. Yeah. That concept, uh, Mark of slowing down is one that we've, that's come up a lot on the podcast, um, through different, uh, folks that we've interviewed and, you know, that led me to do a little research on what happens to the brain in the context of the wilderness. And I'm wondering, and it sounds like you describe it as slowing down. And is that part of what draws you back here? Maybe. Everything in town goes really fast. You know, and it it doesn't, we're not really, I I mean, we're not really built to go that fast. We can't run that fast. We can't, you know, we, we don't, we just don't do things that fast. So the expectations in town is just everything needs to be done right away. And here we, we understand the fact that, you know what, things do take time and, you know, but you have to put effort in, you know, and you can't expect anything to be, you know, done for you. You just, you, you do the work and you just realize it, you appreciate it, but you also have a lot more pride in it that way too. So I think you take less for granted. When you're in the wilderness. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and, and your approach is uh, a very independent one. I know you 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 bring food with yourself, but you've put a lot of time into developing the skills of sustenance. And, and tell us about that process for you of learning learning to sustain out in the wilderness. Well, you know, you can read as many books as you want, and uh, it, it 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 tells you a lot about things, but. Uh, Going out there and actually doing it is a whole different concept, and uh, I never had anybody to teach me or anything like that. You know, I never went to school for it or anything like that. I, I do construction, um, so I, I did read it out of books and everything. And then I would go and I'd sample little things and stuff like that. And of course, you know, certain berries and stuff. You know, I mean, you just kind of know them. But I experienced different things with like roots and you know, different things with cattails and stuff like that. And you put a lot, a lot of work in to get very few calories sometimes on some of them things. And I guess it, it barely even makes it worth it, you know. So that's why I've been more towards the fish and stuff like that, you know. Even um, 
back in the day, like red squirrels, you know, I mean, you can shoot red squirrels year round and stuff like that, but, uh, it, it's just barely worth <laughs> it compared to what you can catch a fish. Yeah. So, and then the berries and stuff and plants, you know, I mean, it's, it's great to eat fresh vegetables in the summer, you know, or in the spring. I mean, especially, you know, I mean, it's, it's great. You get out there and you get fresh salads that are probably way more healthy than you can buy in the store, you know? Yeah. And really the same goes for the berries and everything like that. So, so you have a, a, a pamphlet that you've made and I checked it out and it was, you know, really helpful. You got good descriptions and, and pictures. So, uh, and we'll put a link up on the podcast for anybody who wants to check that out and see the kind of stuff you're eating. But tell us, uh, uh tell us some examples of some of these fresh salads or some of the fresh things that you've been able to put together. Well, in the spring, I mean, the, one of the first things that comes up, you know, of course, is dandelions. And we all know what dandelions are. You're not going to find them out in the woods, but you will find them on campsites and portages and stuff like that, um, which is really the only way you'll find them. Same with plantain um, and even thistle. Uh, one nice thing about thistle is it's a juicy plant compared to most stuff is pretty dry. So when I do find thistle, you just kind of crumple it in your hand a little bit. It takes the thorns away and it's it's pretty tasty. I also like bed straw is another good one. You know, I mean, you can even do like you know strawberry leaves and stuff like that you know all of them go in there fairly well i really like rose flowers you know um they add a nice little fragrance you know during the certain times of the year and stuff uh, i don't know there's a lot of good stuff violets are actually really tasty as well really yeah violets they kind of taste like peas <laughs> <laughs> uh, you'll find them and i don't know there's there's a lot of different stuff you know and once i see it you know i just like oh they're this this and this you know um but them are a few of the things, I guess, in the spring, you know. Now I, I've still been getting some cranberries and stuff like that. Um, most of the fall berries, I guess, like ash and, you know, mountain ash and stuff, I'm just not a big fan of. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. but, Those are uh, beautiful to look at, but maybe they don't taste as, as good as they look. No. No? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> they do look nice, though. Yeah. Yeah. So you, your your habits change throughout the course of the se seasonal uh, change because you're I mean you're out there in the spring through full summer and now it's fall and and you're tuning into all the changes naturally it sounds like so how do, how does that change how do you how does your habits change along with the wilderness changes I figure the the longer it takes me to do my double portage the better it is as the time of the year goes. Because that means that my second portage, I'm stopping and picking a bunch of food. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if, you know, if it takes me twice as long to walk back, you know, great. Because you're filling, filling the storehouse. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so, I mean, that part of it changes. Otherwise, I just, you know, spring is, you know, you can get greens everywhere, you know. Summer now, I can get berries everywhere. You know, that's that's why I explore as much as I do because it doesn't, take me to to find everything anymore i already know where it is mm. um so that's that's kind of where the experience i guess is starting to come in because the first couple of years it wasn't like that you know then i would be searching for food quite a few hours during the day and uh it way different story yeah yeah so this so you're returning to similar places year after year yes yes each year yep, brings me to different places and each season actually brings me to different parts of the boundary waters um you know, you can go to the burned areas, you know, especially during blueberry season, you know, and you can find lots of places. Um, I know places, you know, where there's not burnt areas, where there's still fields of blueberries, uh, but, you know, 
we'll, we'll not discuss where they are. Sure. There are some <laughs> secrets that must be kept. Absolutely, right? <laughs> yeah. So with respect to uh, your uh, exploration and some of the secrets that you, you do get to hold because you've done the work, what are some of your, do you have favorite um, r routes or places that really speak to you that you enjoy going back to for, for whatever reason? Uh, all my paths kind of lead towards Knife Lake. Um, I, I like to leave my vehicle, you know, by Ely because that way I can go towards, um, you know, the Gunflint or I can go up the Echo to that side towards Loch LaCroix. I don't try to spend too much time on Loch LaCroix. It's a big, beautiful lake, um, but, you know, you got the motor noise and stuff like that. Uh, but but ultimately, all, all the roads, you know, I like to spend most of my time through Knife, and then I can go to tons of nice little lakes off of that, and, you know, you got Kekakabic just south of there, but Knife is gorgeous. You've got the good water clarity. You've got the uh, all types of fish that you want to catch. There's beautiful history behind the entire lake and everything, and actually part of that lake is somewhat burnt, you know, so, mm -hmm. I mean, you got part you got the disparate different aspects of uh, the entire forest there which is great for all seasons there is something special about knife there and i'm still trying to really figure out what that is about what is your feeling of that of of knife i don't know there is there's just something about it i think it's i think it's really just the fact that it's all cliffs and gorgeous and you can you can look down tw 20 feet of water and you can see the bottom and that's that's something special you know mm -hmm. and you, you get that in a few lakes around the area but but not a lot so that just adds adds to it all you know so i think being able to see below you just as much as seeing around you has a big part to do with it yeah yeah mm -hmm. it's uh less unknown <laughs> when, you know i know when i'm paddling and especially on south of the gunflint you get a lot more of the bog stained lakes and uh it feels different not necessarily better or worse but it feels different right yeah and one interesting lake as far as that is concerned is basswood you know because basswood is a huge lake but when you go on the east side of basswood you know you got like almost a 20-foot water clarity coming all in from from knife there mm. but then on the western side you have the quishui stain coming up right? right yeah so you've got you know, that lake is really a good example of being able to see the difference in water clarity from one side to the next. Yeah, I mean, that's really, the, that's the transition lake. Yes. A, a great example of that. Yeah. Uh, do, you, do you know how that affects fishing? Well, it, it makes a big difference. I mean, the clear water is definitely tougher to fish. Uh, I, I've kind of found that Lighter colors work in lighter water, and darker colors work in dark water for some reason. But, I mean, who knows? That could just be me. I mean, we all got our fishing theories and stuff, you know. Right. And, you know, I've seen people fish all day and not catch anything, and I can cast one time and catch one, or the exact opposite can happen. You know, I mean, it's, uh, it's got a little bit of luck, but, you right. know, there's definitely technique to it, you know. I mean, I do all the rapples now when I'm trolling and stuff like that, and... I guess sometimes, you know, I'll go towards shore. Sometimes I'll paddle away from shore, you know, and sometimes that matters. Sometimes I'll slow down almost to a dead stop, especially uh, trout fishing. Um, I'll pull it fast for a little bit, and then I'll come to a complete stop. And a lot of the times the trout hit only when I'm stopped. So uh, I don't know if they, they must just like to follow it. But, you know, so there is some techniques, but yeah, sometimes luck. Yeah, and what, I, and what you have out there is time. Yeah, you know, so I can figure it out. Mm -hmm. I mean, and you have, <laughs> yeah. Just from what you're saying, you've d developed your strategies. Yeah, you have to. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're not. I mean, it's not a choice. <laughs> <laughs> it's your survival. Yeah, I mean, it is a choice, I guess. I mean, I could obviously come out and you know go and maintain a relatively decent lifestyle, you know, any other type of way. But uh, it, this is just different. It's more special. It's very special. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it's really cool how um, how we came to encounter each other. Uh, you did have some issues that brought you out of the Boundary Waters. And I'm not exactly sure how this all came about, but I know you had a broken tent pole. You're looking for some potential repair options and came ended up at the outfitter that I spend a lot of time at and uh, our paths crossed that way. So I imagine the amount of time you spend out there, you have to deal with issues, broken gear, uh, unforeseen challenges. Uh, can you share some examples of how you've worked through some of those things? Yeah, well, the tent stake was kind of funny because I, I do all hammocking. So I, I just because I've been car camping the last couple of days. Um, oh, I see. Uh, that's yeah. So I set up my tent and pff, junk. <laughs> <laughs> so I just went back to my hammock, you know. And I actually, uh, I gear is a, is a very big, uh, big deal, and I do spend a lot of money on gear. But I've bought less, you know, less expensive stuff. And for me, it just doesn't work. You know, for the majority of the people, it absolutely probably does. Um, but I put everything to the test, to the max. Um, I've switched my tarp um, for over the top of my hammock to Cuban fiber, which is different than nylon. And uh, I, I, I tell you what, I mean, it's just it's amazing the difference in durability. You know, I didn't, I didn't know if it would be worth it or not. And I've had that thing for well over three i've set it up over 300 times and actually i just did a little review on it but um nice yeah so i'll put that on you're passionate about the cuban fiber man it's a big it's a big (laughs) deal you know i mean i tell you you know some stuff just breaks you know it breaks down and it's it's lasted me for a long time and i don't have equipment last me multiple years every year i normally have to buy a new food bag i always have to buy different stuff there's very few things that last me year after year after year that tarp is one of them my sleeping bag, you know, or quilts, I guess, you know, or is mm-hmm. another one that works pretty good. Um, I've even had to buy hammocks, you know. I mean, I love my hammock, um, but I've had to buy more than one already, you know. So Right. What hammock are you sleeping yeah. in out there? Uh, it's a war bonnet blackbird. Okay. So it's got the mosquito net sewn into it and stuff like that. And Full setup. Yeah, very nice. You know, this whole, there's this new wave of hammock camping, uh, and it spans, you know, from... As simple as college students, you know, stringing them up on campuses uh, to lounge to uh, a full-on, fully practical wilderness setup. And and it's amazing that this is sort of a shift we're seeing in wilderness travel for a lot of folks. Um, And it sounds like you're sold on the the hammock camping. Yeah, you save on weight. Um, One of the biggest problems that you have with with the hammock is you're going to get bit underneath, you know. So some people put a, bring a camping pad Oh, that's taking up room, you know. I Because I'm out there all season, I have an underquilt. And what I do when it gets warm out is I'll take that underquilt and I'll put it inside of the hammock so then I'm actually sleeping on the down and using it, you know, and I'm compressing it. So it doesn't really work as much of an insulator. It still gets a little warm sometimes, but I don't get bit by mosquitoes. So it's a pretty fair trade-off. <laughs> no kidding. Because, <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, they get pretty bad uh, come peak season. Yeah. And uh, it, does is that a factor in in your planning around where you're going to be and how you're going to orient? 
I don't like to be on sandy beaches. Sandy beaches, for some reason, seem to have a lot of bugs. Also, on a hot day, that sand gets really hot. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just, I, I don't, and you know what? Honestly, I, I'll, I'm by myself. So the families with the kids and stuff like that, they can have the, the beach campsites. <laughs> Absolutely, you know. Sure, they want them too. Yeah, oh yeah, you know, understandably so. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that, yeah. So when you're out here on these solo trips, do you prefer to stick, to kind of stick to yourself and um, do your own thing, or do you find yourself meeting folks or traveling with other people at all? It's not very often that I travel with people. I, I mean, in the spring and stuff, it's more of a time for me to kind of be by myself for a little bit, as opposed to in the summer and in the fall. You know, I, I get really lonely, um, so I, I need to have the conversation from people. So every little time I run into somebody at a portage, I try to talk to them for a little bit, and uh, we're all out there because we love it, you know. So we always automatically have something in common. So it's mm-hmm. not like you're not going to get along with somebody because, <laughs> we, you know, we're all there for the same reason. Exactly. Um, so it's nice, you know, it's nice to have the conversations with people like that and everything. Um, sometimes kind of in the fall, I feel like I'm almost chasing people down. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, I'm right. really not, but it's just, you know, I'm like, I mean, we should go catch up to them. <laughs> yeah. But you know? there's an excitement there, I imagine. Yeah. And by that point, I can paddle pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you had mentioned to me that this is one of the first seasons where you've uh, sustained your, your body mass or your body weight. Uh, and and you're just, we're talking about that, like the, the strength building process. I mean, you're out living on the land and uh, what's, what's the key this year that uh, allowed you to be able to not lose weight out there? Uh, I still lost a little bit, but you just, uh, it, it's just the knowledge and experience is all it is. You know, I mean, it's, not that I've really, I mean, each year gradually I learn a little bit more and a little bit more. And of course you do, you know, I mean, you should learn everything every day, you know, it's just a part of it. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's being able to sustain everything a little bit better. I, I did resupply my food bags every like three weeks this year. Normally I would do like four or five, you know, um, and that gets a little bit tougher. So I just, I made it a little bit easier on myself that way. But, but really, I think it's just the experience more than anything. Sure. You're not having to work as hard. Right. Uh, for some of the basic things that you had to when you were learning. Yeah, it's less searching and really, which, you know, and when you're searching out there, it's 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 a workout, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not like you're climbing around on flat ground or anything like mm-hmm. that. I mean, and I'm not driving to get from point A to point B, you know. I mean, yeah. every single thing you do is a workout out there, you know. But you can't look at it out like that because it's not. It's, you know, it's it's not work to do any of that. It's all, it's it's just a part of life, but, but really, I mean, it's more entertaining than that, you know, I mean, it's a great time. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's you know, it's, how can you complain about that? <laughs> the, the, yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing that the wilderness offers so much sustenance that most of us are totally unaware of. And you have this relationship with the wilderness where, you know, it's providing for you because you do the work to let it which is kind of a mind-blowing idea that you have a sort of a deeper relationship with the wilderness because of the way that you're spending your time on the land. I can see that. Uh, You know, everything in nature is, you learn to appreciate it. And the the more time you spend out there, the more appreciation you have for uh, the smaller parts of it. And, you know, you start to realize that, you know, all of it has a lot more meaning than and we just think of because we normally just walk in the woods and we just look hey you know well there's you know an aspen tree or there's an oak tree well 
you know, not every oak tree is the same oak tree, you know, so there's, there's not to say that there's personalities in them or anything like that, but there's definitely different characteristics between them all. Mm-hmm. So it, it is kind of interesting. Yeah. The way that you can get to know those minute, unique differences. Yeah. You know, it makes it just more special and, you know, makes it all worth it. You know, I'm up out there by myself, so, you know. I gotta, gotta have some friends out there. <laughs> <laughs> the trees make great friends, don't they? Mike? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I personally agree with that right? completely. Yeah, animals—they talk back, you know, especially mm-hmm. them red squirrels. You know, uh, they'll, they'll spend all day talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> they are pretty chatty, aren't they? Hell yeah. <laughs> so I'm, you know, thinking, wondering, probably as other everyone else listening is, how did this start? Well, I kind of, I decided in my life that I needed to change some things. I was living day to day in town and it was the same routine, same thing over and over. And uh, there's, there's lots of possibility and lots of options there. There is, but none of them that I really found to make me as happy as I needed to be. And um, I came out here and I wasn't planning on being out here and doing this for as long as I was or anything like that. I just... I came out here kind of looking for an answer that I wasn't able to find in town. And I guess I kind of found that answer, and it wasn't the answer that I was expecting, but um, it's definitely very fulfilling, and uh, it's made my life a lot better, and I feel like I can I can share it with people in a positive way and, and leave, leave a good impact and a good influence on people now, which is, uh, I guess, one of the nicest things, because when you're alone for a long time, there's a few things that you miss. And one of the things that you miss is giving and helping other people, which is kind of interesting. I mean, and you can kind of expect it, but I mean, I didn't really know what to expect. And I just, that's one of the things that I find myself missing. So when I find somebody out there, you know, if I have extra blueberries or if I have some knowledge that I can share with them, that's one of the first things that I want to do is I want to share some information and I want to mm-hmm. share a way to help people. Yeah. It's really, that, that's a component of all of this. Yeah. It makes it great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and especially because the, that's our that's our wilderness community, like you said, everyone you encounter is a part of that out there, mm-hmm. and that's already connecting. And then you go the extra distance of sharing what you have, uh, and that can be a story or an actual tangible food source. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I think that's neat that we all get to be a part of that. So when you when you came out here you and you started giving back in other ways you've developed um, some online resources that share some of your skills and some of your experiences uh, is that part of how you've continued to do that giving back and yeah I find it it's hard to to share things with a lot of people this is an excellent way to do it with the podcast here and um, I don't really do mark marketing on it or anything like that um i just if people are kind of interested in edible plants of the boundary waters you can find it and stuff uh i did started doing the youtube videos because i did want to share that and um i just wanted to share some of the unique information that i have out there because it's a first-hand experience from a person who's done it for a long time and you, you don't get that very often you know um so i try to explain you know um different ways to kill even different ways to kill bugs, I actually have um, some information <laughs> on that. Because, really? yeah, there is there is multiple ways. Um, and, and once you learn them, they get to the point that they're really not even that big of a nuisance anymore. It's just like, okay, well, I just got to take care of this, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but the YouTube videos, they 
they're nice. I mean, it's nice to be able to share stuff that way. Um, now I want to do start doing some more reviews on equipment and stuff like that because I feel like, you know, my reviews are be a little bit more valuable than most of the time when you watch videos and stuff. It's all oh, the unboxing of the equipment and, you know, oh, it looks pretty. Well, who cares? You know, how's it work? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> functionality. Know? Yeah, you know, and how does it work after multiple years of use, you know, because that's the type of gear that I need. Yeah. You know, so that's the valuable information. Really, truly putting it to the test. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, if anybody wants to check that out, uh, where would they find some of those things? Um, my YouTube page is called Zimmer Plant, uh, Pamphlets. My last name is Zimmer, Z-I-M-M-E-R. Um, and then my uh, website is zimmerpamphlets.weebly.com. It's a free website that I get to play around with and just make stuff on. But then on that website, I also made an edible plants pamphlet um, that's got just a few of the edible plants in the area that are all native that you'll find all over the Boundary Waters as opposed to most of them, which is just in... <clears throat> excuse me, invasive species and stuff like that. And, um, well, you're not going to find them out in the boundary water, so it just didn't make sense to have that. So sure. I do have the uh, pamphlet to go on my website uh, available for free to download as a PDF file. Awesome. Mark, you are a true inspiration. Uh, the way that you've chosen to live your life, uh, that's really true to you and true to the real world. You know, we always joke whenever I'm, coming out of the boundary waters, you know, people say, oh, back to the real world. And, you know, my sort of running joke is, you know, we're in the real world, <laughs> the most real world. Right. And, and I hear that from you loud and clear. I can totally agree with that statement. Yeah, right on. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for sharing with our listeners about your experience and for giving back by being on the podcast. And I hope that uh, there are many people who remember encountering the guy in the solo kayak, because you've met a lot of folks out there, and hopefully they uh, hear your story and remember uh, their awesome experience with you. Yeah, absolutely. It was it's always great to meet people out there, and it's been a pleasure doing the podcast with you. Well, we will uh, definitely have you back to hear more stories. Thanks so much, Mark. All right, thank you. Quick editor's note here on the WTIP Boundary Waters podcast. In post-production, we discovered that Matthew and Mark had a very interesting transition in their interview. And fortunately for us, the listeners, that uh, part of the tape kept rolling. So let's pick up on their conversation that they perhaps didn't know was still rolling, at least at the beginning here. So let's uh, continue this conversation. go i guess i didn't even talk about my most hardcore part which part you know i do it all barefoot <laughs> yeah we're turning this back on <laughs> here <laughs> i've got i can show it to you in a little bit i got the the reason that i was in the boundary waters journal to begin with was because i am a barefooter okay <laughs> i think we're recording again let me let me double check Okay, so we just had to turn the recorder back on because Mark told me the most epic part of his endeavors. What is it, Mark? I'm a barefooter. What is a barefooter? <laughs> I portage and do everything out there barefoot. What? <laughs> what is that? Tell us about that. 
Well, the biggest thing is it's it's rains a lot here, and we have a lot of rocks, and they get slippery, and I see a lot of people fall, and um, I, I decided that I was just going to take kind of my shoes off, and I used to wear them five-finger shoes, the toe shoes uh-huh. or whatever, and they were great because you can use your toe muscles, which is a huge advantage, but when you're trekking through the woods, just, you know, hiking and stuff like that, little sticks would go through them and stuff like that, and I'd go through like a pair a year, you know, and that's just doesn't cut it for me right so i just took the shoes off and some my same pair of feet loving it you haven't had to replace those no nope. <laughs> grow about an eighth inch in the summer it's great <laughs> you probably have the most epic foot calluses they're great yeah you can kind of push on my heel and my toes wiggle right <laughs> it's really not that bad but uh no it, it's nice because the the slippery rocks and everything like that it, it works uh it, it's great uh you can you can use your uh nerves and everything like that almost as a second set of eyes because you're feeling everything yeah absolutely and after a couple of years you're not feeling the pain anymore holy cow <laughs> so those calluses maintain when you're not i mean you build them up throughout the year do you have to start over every year um, they, they lose quite a bit, but, um, they, they seem to build up quicker now and yeah. stuff, but I don't lose as much. So I've still got, always have thicker feet than I used to. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting because, you know, I'm, I'm not a barefooter. I didn't even know that that existed, but when I'm, whenever I'm not portaging, so whenever I'm in camp, I'm always barefoot. And I just do that because I enjoy, I, I walk slower, I'm, I move more um, gently on the land, and I appreciate the slowing down of that. Is that part of this for you? I mean, I'm just trying to make sense of this um, barefoot thing. Well, it's, I mean, you're, you definitely are more graceful, you know, when, you, when you're barefoot <laughs> and stuff like that. And um, I just, I get really good footing. And if that's one of the things you need out there is you need to have excellent footing, you know, and it, being a soloist i can't make a mistake mm-hmm. you know because if i do make a mistake it might have a lot more severe consequences and i just i feel like i've got better traction you know so it's really just a personal choice i've never met another barefooter out there mm-hmm. um but i will you know put my feet print in the mud you know just to <laughs> mess with people when they're going down the trail <laughs> yeah, i'm sure you do yeah that's but, awesome uh just another reason why mark the 800 day paddler is my new hero thanks again mark thank you all right matthew there's your your conversation with Mark Zimmer, uh, amazing adventurer paddler, and we learned one of those uh, tricks we're learning here on the podcast: keep the recorder rolling because sometimes <laughs> the magic comes out shortly thereafter. Uh, as we found out with uh, with Mark, there just like <laughs> the barefoot, the barefoot aspect. He, totally. he just doesn't even bring it up. Uh, his stories, we could have him on. I mean. A documentary about Mark, I think, would be a completely appropriate thing at some well, point. Put it on the to-do list. Yes. You know, that's one of my favorite things about doing this podcast, Joe, is the discovering people who are they, that push the limits of what I perceive as humanly possible and inspire, at least me personally, to, to realize, like, oh, man, there's a lot more that can be done uh, as far as in the wilderness the foraging aspect uh, that mark shared fishing uh just what he carries for gear uses solar uh you know he he was a little reluctant to say yeah i'm a straight up minimalist but by many people's accounts 
Oh yeah, that he is. You yeah. know, I mean, he he lives out there for months and months every year, and he right. did, and his whole kind of uh, planning around life is based upon going to the wilderness. Exactly, and the way that he plans his life around doing that and has reshuffled his priorities. You know, we heard from that from Mark. We heard about that from Anna and Steve Holtz. You heard about that from uh, from Bob O'Hara, just about how these lifestyle choices lend to the real priorities, which is getting out into the wilderness. It's been uh, amazing to hear these stories on the WTIP Boundary Waters podcast. And now that we're on the cusp of winter, you know, kind of entering winter here, that's just pretty much call it what it is. We're entering winter here in November. And like we said at the top of the show, I mean, there's not a lot of people out in the woods right now. It's very quiet (laughs) and cold. In the Boundary Waters, and it's also a time not for the faint-hearted, but also not for the inexperienced paddler or recreator, however you're getting around in the Boundary Waters this time of year. And we wanted to take this conversation to somebody who lives and breathes the Boundary Waters, Claire and Dan Shirley, and let's switch it over to them. Joining us now here at the WTIP studios in Grand Marais on the podcast to talk about paddling in shoulder seasons and and for our purposes today, primarily going to be talking about November paddling are Claire and Dan Shirley. They're the owners of Sawbill Canoe Outfitters here in Cook County. A pleasure to have both of you in the studio today. Hey, Joe. Glad to be here. Yeah. Hi. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about this. This is a, it can be serious conversation, certainly when we're talking paddling in November, both from a safety standpoint and and just uh, the situations that can present themselves when paddling here in November. Uh, Being that you're the owners of uh, Sawbill Canoe Outfitters at the end of the Sawbill Trail, where the Sawbill begins in Tofty, what do you see for traffic in November? I mean, is there anybody swinging through the shop? Is there anybody coming to the entry points that you're familiar with? What happens in November in the Boundary Waters? I should, I should also point out that uh, Sig is in the studio with us here today, a uh, newborn. Uh, yeah, our, our five-week-old is along with us right now. He uh, he goes everywhere that we do. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so he, this is his, his debut uh, radio appearance. All right. So. All right. Well, we're glad to have the, of the yeah. three of you here today. Um, so what happens? Uh, uh, Dan, what do you think? I mean, we're talking November paddling, and so what's the scene up there at Sawbill? Yeah, well, we definitely look forward to November after a busy season because everything kind of stops. So it's definitely the slowest month, I would say. Um, You know, the phone literally stops ringing and it's the kind of the one time of the year when our campground on site will will sort of empty out. There'll be no cars in the parking lot sometimes. So it really is truly the shoulder um, more than any other month, I'd say. there is a, a person or two that comes through. Um, mostly in October, you see stragglers. You know, we've got some people out right now. Um, but, you know, with the looming ice in, that kind of keeps people away for sure. So it's slow. Okay. And so there's a number of things that can present themselves. You could enter, a start a trip, and let's say it's uh, first of November, early first weekend in November. And um, you go in and it's... You're paddling free. I mean, it's cold, but there's no ice. But it can literally be you wake up the next morning at camp, and there's ice. I mean, it can be a half inch, or there's definitely ice on the lake. What do you tell people? What What's the advice that you would give somebody if they were entering the Boundary Waters right now? 
uh, in November here, and they're maybe even not all that experienced. They've just come, and this is the time of year they could come paddle. What would you What would you tell a, a novice paddler at this time of year? Boy, a novice paddler, I would I would recommend maybe you go in for day trips um, and stay in one of the national forest campgrounds like the Sawbill Campground or Trails End or one of the other free ones. Like they have some campsites over at Kawishui Entry Point. Um, if you're really inexperienced, that's the way to go because you're not going to get stuck out there because um, that's a real possibility. I mean, ice in doesn't always mean that the ice comes in and is travelable quickly. You know, I mean, sometimes ice in takes a month or more, um, and that's not unheard of. So you're out there, you can't paddle through it. It's too thick. It'll wreck your canoe, uh, but you can't walk on it yet either. So, and that, that type of scenario can last, like I said, for weeks. Um, so a, if, you, if you're not real experienced, I would stay on the edge of the Boundary Waters and day trip in. Um, and you get the same sort of experience. You're going to get the same kind of solitude. Like Dan said, the campgrounds are pretty much empty. Um, and that's a good way to experience it if you're not really comfortable. Um, if you have your heart set on going into the Boundary Waters, I'd say it's all about the contingency plans. you got to have a backup plan to your backup plan. People got to know where you are. Um and one of those, one of the biggest backup plans, I think this is something my dad tells people, and, and I would echo this too, is that you should have a, a overland exit um, available at all times. So be looking on your map, be conscientious of where you are, not only in terms of the lakes and the portages, but is there a route overland that you could hike out if, you know, worst came to worst? Yeah, I think that's absolutely excellent advice. And uh, let's just say now, just hypothetical situation, if somebody were to be in the boundary waters at this time of year and they woke up and they had a, a Kevlar canoe and what's the best advice you would give them if it's, you know, overland is, is either they're in too deep and that just doesn't seem like a realistic option or safe. Uh, what do you say? Wait it out, wait for some wind and sun or what would you say to somebody in that situation? Yeah, no, that's a very good start because the ice doesn't necessarily, as it starts to come in, it freezes up places where the water's not moving. Maybe it's protected from the wind. Um, so you may have ice in an area and that can shift. So you may be iced in on your campsite or at a portage and yeah, you, you may wait for the winds to shift and it can blow that ice out. Um, the temperatures are highly variable this time of year. So, you know, a couple days ago it was... 16 degrees at sawbill and you know then it was 50 and you might get some ice melting in that kind of a situation so you definitely want to be patient and not make a, a rash decision um i was actually just on a trip a week ago and came across a couple of of icy areas and you know we look for areas that we can skirt around the edges where it's a little bit thinner um we were paddling a kevlar canoe um the my friend jesse who was in the bow uh, we had a big log and he was breaking ice with the log as we went ahead. So um, we weren't ramming it with the canoe. Mm -hmm. So that can be a good idea. You know, you just have to be careful because you're kind of throwing your balance off. Um, but yeah, it's it's all about patience and keeping your safety in mind because the water is super cold. You know, if it's been snowing and the temperatures have been low, the water temperature is low. Um, so you want to make sure you're keeping yourself dry at all costs. Yeah, I think it, it, this time of year, we always hear on the podcast emphasize wearing uh, your PFD, your life jacket, all the time, mm -hmm. even in you know the depths of July and August and so forth. Uh, we've heard just some some too many stories about uh, incidents involving drowning in the in the Boundary Water. So 
we're trying to always reinforce that. But in November, it's not a negotiable tactic. It's not, I'm a paddler and I have, you know, I own Sawbill Canoe Outfitters, for example, therefore I wouldn't need to. I'm in a canoe all the time. You have to wear a life jacket in November. And what about, uh, you mentioned you were in a Kevlar. That's, uh, that's, that's cool. But what, what type of watercraft are you seeing people go in on a November trip or, uh, let's even start with a solo canoe. Sure. I mean, you're seeing mostly Kevlar, frankly. I mean, that's just the preferred, you know, layup in the boundary waters, Mm -hmm. um, these days. But if you, you know, Royal X would be a great option, um, because you're, you can bang into the ice and it's a lot more resilient and it's got a little bit more heft behind it, which can be a little more effective in breaking the ice with a little more inertia an aluminum canoe. Although, you know, you sort of take the good with the bad with, with an aluminum, um, in terms of just, you know, they're just out of favor a little bit because they're so heavy to carry. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think avoiding having to break ice, I, you know, that's not a great answer is probably the best policy. Um, but, you know, along the lines of wearing your life jacket, you know, absolutely you're, you're launching and that's going to help keep you warm too. That's another layer. Um, yeah, you're always wearing your life jacket hundred percent. Um, you know, if you looked at actually Dave and Amy Freeman explorers, David, Amy Freeman, they're sort of like the prime example for what to do in an ice scenario, you know, having spent a year in the boundary waters. I mean, those guys are wearing dry suits, PFDs all the time. And if you do need to step out on the ice because it's really thick and you can't bust through it, you know, if you go in, you're fine. I mean, that's probably, if you really want to do it right, right. You're in a dry suit. <laughs> yeah, so th- that kind of opens up the broader question of why in the world would you take a trip in November in the Boundary Waters? What's What would be a plus or a positive or an incentive to go in November? I mean, you're certainly going to get solitude. There is there is no one else out there. I mean, you know, for a reason, but it is uh, really pretty. And if you want to get away from the crowds and want to avoid the, you know, scene in August – um, November's the time to do it. There is no one, there is no one out there. Yeah. And I've heard, I've had mixed results fishing. I mean, on Thanksgiving, like the day before Thanksgiving, 2017, uh, I was ice fishing actually in Cook County and, um, you know, a couple, there was probably three inches of ice right around four maybe. And, uh, did fairly well for walleye fishing in November, but what other types of fishing report, you know, lake trout seasons closed, so you can't be targeting those. Do you hear anybody talking about fishing in November at all? It's not the main draw, uh, for sure. People, but you know, the Boundary Waters is such an amazing fishery that if you have the chance to come to the Boundary Waters, oftentimes you want to throw a line in. Um, so that's what we hear most about, you know, f- folks that are up for a visit for whatever reason, they're like, I want to go fishing. Um, but we're not, the serious anglers aren't aren't coming for that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, really... What I would say, in addition to the solitude that Claire mentioned, um, you know, witnessing the ice forming, um, changing is kind of a spectacular thing. Um, while it is dangerous and you should take all the precautionary measures, um, it's a fleeting moment in time to see ice form. And um, it's sort of just gorgeous and delicate in those times. And it, it's just a, a neat a neat thing to, to witness. So that's definitely a draw um, because it's usually, you know, once winter sets in, it's, you know, it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I would say that's a really cool thing to see. Yeah, absolutely. And so let's go back. I, I want to 
get a visual uh, in my mind and hopefully uh, the listener here too about taking your Kevlar through ice. Like, how does it uh, when you're talking on your recent trip here in 2018, right on this uh, cusp as winter is right around the corner? We've had some ice and then it'll go away and comes back and forth at this stage right now. You know, early November, late October, and what? So what happens when you? take Kevlar into ice, let's just say maybe a quarter inch, half inch, something like that. What does it kind of go right through it or what do you need to keep in mind here? Yeah. I mean, actually a quarter inch to half inch is pretty darn thick. You know, a half inch of ice is it probably won't break through very well and you need something to break it with, um, which we ran into some of that a quarter inch and lower, it will break. Um, it, it's all about the momentum though, you know, having, if you're along a shoreline and you can kind of push against rocks or in shallower water to, you know, get your paddle some purchase on something or even pieces of, of the shards of ice. Cause it breaks in big plates. It's not like it shatters into millions of little pieces, you know, it, it breaks into big plates. And so those plates are also still in the, they may be dislodged from the lot from the larger ice sheet, but they're still in that space. So they're still kind of clogging up the area where your paddle would be. Um, so your the bow of your canoe is kind of like breaking it apart, edging it apart, but then you have these big sheets and your paddle is trying to find a way through the sheets to the water and you're kind of pushing against the sheets. Um, and it's um, frustrating and, you know, warms you up uh, as you move through. But, you know, the it I, I would say as far as... Um, you know, are you going to hurt your canoe doing that? Um, if you're doing that for a sustained period of time, yeah, for sure. You know, it's going to be hard on, on a Kevlar canoe. There was a guy several years ago now who w- went out over ice and just on the north end of Sawbill, and he was in a, a Grumman um, ultralight, and he sold an aluminum canoe, and he totally messed up the canoe trying to come back in just to Sawbill, just going down one lake. I mean, I think it was his aunt's canoe or something, and um, I was just talking to my dad about it this morning, and he totally wrecked an aluminum canoe coming in. I'm not sure how thick the ice was, but you know, even short distances like that, I mean, he probably would have done well to wait a day or two and see, you know, or, I mean, it's just so hard to say, but yeah. So even the aluminum canoes, I mean, you don't, you worry about your Kevlar, but you, you have to be careful with every kind of material depending on the, on the thickness and the circumstances. If you can get the boat on top of the ice, you know, let's say, um, if you know, in this instance where we ran into a half inch of ice, um, last week, it was a shorter, it was in a bog and, you know, we probably had to travel like 50 yards to get to the other portage. So it was just a short little stint. And, um, it was reasonable for us to have a big log in the bow and just kind of breaking our way through and and picking our way through. But if you're on a little bit larger Lake and there's a, a more defined shoreline, um, you can walk along the shore and drag the canoe across the ice, you know, and that's, that's not going to be hard. That, that you know i'll scratch it a little bit but that that would probably be the way to go okay and so let's say you're you're at camp now and you're hanging out and it's november and uh we're talking about temps in the teens and so forth and that can happen you know in, in may trips and things like this too but what do you need to keep in mind about staying dry keeping warm at a campsite in, in november if you are doing a, an actual overnight trip yeah you know if taking care of your feet is the first thing you need to worry about. You know, we're always telling people, you know, plan to get your feet wet, 
you're you know anytime you go into the boundary waters um but you know wearing chacos or tevas in november is not really a good idea so you want to wear something that's gonna you can get your feet in the water but are gonna keep them dry so rubber boots you know some sort of heavy neoprene something that's going to keep your feet dry is i would say the first thing you need to to figure out in your your gear regime because the portages are going to be wet campsites are probably you know there's going to be snow they're going to be wet but getting in and out of the boat you're going to get your feet wet so that's the number one um keeping your hands somewhat dry and and warm is the other thing because you know that's the other area that's really exposed and then beyond that you know um it's just it's just being you know those of us that live up here especially it's just being outside in the winter you know it's kind of standard winter gear um wool is nice because it'll keep you warm while it gets a little wet um maybe a pair of rain pants even you can wear over wool um if it is kind of rainy or, or getting wetter if it's not just snow um is a good idea um layers is always the way to go so you can adjust um Usually there's a lot of firewood around um, because trees have been coming down. So have a nice fire. Take your time. Yeah, cool. And uh, another uh, benefit would be that the permits are free. Uh, mm-hmm. You still have to get a self-issued permit, but there's no cost. So if you drive up or, or even if you could just choose the morning of, like, hey, we can actually follow through with this. So there's no risk of having to go uh, issue, get the issued permit, make the reservation online. So there's no uh, cost associated with a, a trip like this, which could be viewed certainly as, as a benefit, I suppose. And so, Dan, I'm curious about this uh, trip that you recently took here in uh, fall to 2018. What was the point? Like, what were you up to out there? Just decided uh, you, you'd been busy all year and now shops winding down. You can step away a little bit. And how'd it go? Like, what'd you do out there on this late fall trip? Yeah, absolutely. Um, with two young children, newborn, it's like, okay, here's a window we can take and I can sneak away. And um, one of my best friends has from Montana, where we used to live, has been working with us at Sawbill and yeah, old camping buddy. Um, so he and I are always kind of chomping at the bit. So um, he's patiently been waiting for me to, to find the window. So it was like, okay, here we go. Um, yeah, just a chance to get away um, and do a route that I actually had never done before. Um, we did the Laos River, and we were drawn to that because it was some moving water, so we were less worried about getting iced in. Um, and the Forest Service, we have a little beta on them um, having just cleared the area. It's not traveled very often, so it's a really remote and rugged route any time of the year. Um which can make it challenging to navigate, but we knew the Forest Service had just been through and done a big clearing project. So it was like, this was a great time to do it. The water levels are really high um, right now. So traveling on the rivers are, it's a good good deal. Um, yeah, it was, it was really amazing. You know, due to my short amount of time that I have these days, I typically do, um, I'm a lot more aggressive with my days on the routes. So I'll do a, a route that, you know, we would advertise as like, you know, maybe a three or four day route. We'll do it in like, you know, two days, you know, one night, you know, mm-hmm. rather than two or three nights or that kind of thing. So we just, you know, travel all day. That's what I like to do on canoe trips. I like to travel. I'm not much of a fisherman. So I'm like, okay, let's just cover some ground. So, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And so what type you mentioned that you did encounter some ice on this trip and the bog where there's even a half inch at times. 
uh, see anybody else out there? And it sounds like even maybe in August, you might not see too many people on this route you chose, but, uh, any, you know, wildlife people, what, what'd you encounter out there? Well, you know, the only other person we encountered was another Sawbill crew member who was out for a two week trip <laughs> and we happened to cross paths with him, um, yeah. So that was kind of fun. Um, but otherwise we didn't see any other people and, you know, we didn't really see as much wildlife as we were hoping for either, you know, no megafauna. So like no moose, um, no wolves, didn't hear any wolves. We saw several beavers, um, as we were traveling the river, um, some other little, I don't know what they were, little weasel family guys running around on the skim ice, mm -hmm. um, which was really neat. Um, we had pretty much every weather condition you could imagine, you know, it snowed several inches, you know, it got down to, you know, in the teens, so our water bottles froze and then it was sunny and, um, the tamaracks have all changed. So it's that really bright orange glow, um, against, you know, the otherwise sort of gray backdrop that, that the wilderness takes on this time of year. Um, yeah. And it was just a lot of solitude and, um, a lot of you know just camaraderie with a with a good old friend taking a break yeah cool man that sounds like a great trip and so uh would you rent a canoe out this time like sawbill is you know sort of unofficially closed at this time of year november and uh if somebody called up and wanted a couple kevlars would you pull them off the rack or what would be your reaction to that yeah that's so dependent on the weather and the forecast um you know last year absolutely not you know we got six inches of snow on october 25th and it stayed for the rest of the winter i mean that pretty much just shut the door not that you couldn't travel in that snow but i mean we didn't even get the phone call you know we were putting scrambling to get canoes put away because kevlar's can't be out in this you know under heavy snow um a couple three years ago you know it was pretty nice you know the first week of november and we sent out some day trippers for sure you know mm -hmm. we still had a, we keep a couple canoes out on the rack as long as the weather is is okay um and you know we'd probably be hesitant to send you out on a on an overnight trip we we would probably want to vet you just in terms of your plans etc because you know we want people to be safe and we don't want to be you know just part of a, a plan that doesn't make sense um but for a day trip you know sure if we're around why not yeah, cool. All right. Well, uh, so then just lastly here, uh, this is something that's been on my mind as I think about my own trips. And, uh, of course I often have to factor in fishing into mine. So I have my answer in my mind, what it, where I would plan, but for you personally, would you rather make a trip? And let's just say we're talking middle of each month and typical conditions. So maybe some ice and, and for April, which is the other month I want to put out there, uh, more than likely going to be some ice too. Would you rather do a trip in mid-November or mid-April, and why? Um, I would say mid-April, for sure. Um, the traveling conditions are going to be a lot more predictable. Um, the ice is likely going to still be pretty darn solid, um, so you can travel kind of wherever you would want. Um, the days are longer. The weather is getting nicer. Um, you know, you can have some warm weather in April. Um and yeah, I, I just, I would be less stressed out about an April time 
trip than I would be in November. Because if you don't have a huge time period, if you go on a November trip, I mean, you just got to be, you got to have a kind of end open-ended schedule and mm-hmm. i don't have that always so, <laughs> so yeah. april would be good for me yeah all right cool well uh, appreciate these insights and and again i think the key takeaway from this is is it's uh definitely a good idea to have some experience under your belt don't don't necessarily make your first trip to the boundary waters in november um if that's the only time you can i guess that's just the way it is but uh try to get some experience paddling in the boundary waters before you make a november trip and even no matter how experienced you are be prepared to deal with some ice some severe weather cold weather and always uh wear your life jacket uh certainly on a november trip and we've been talking about uh shoulder season paddling today with claire and dan shirley we also had uh young sig here in the studio with us the newest member of their family and they are the owners of sawbill canoe outfitters i really appreciate this and thanks for coming on the podcast Ah, our pleasure joe thanks for having us wow joe those guys are a wealth of experience and knowledge it seemed appropriate to have them in you know the end of the sawbill trail it's a quiet remote area and they live there year round they do some traveling here and there you know to break up the seasons but otherwise they're right there they see who comes through sawbill issue permits there and they both get out in the wilderness a lot themselves so uh great to hear their perspective on november travel and uh, those safety tips too that they really talked about i think that's some key stuff to keep in mind if you're ever planning a november trip and maybe you and I would plan a November trip, and I think we'd consult uh, some of their experience right I'm, there. I mean, let's go. <laughs> I'm ready. Come on. Yeah. Well, hey, on that note, we're out of time here on the 11th episode of the WTIP Boundary Waters podcast. Huge shout out to Derek and Andrea up at Loon Lake Lodge for supporting today's episode of the podcast. Uh, you can hear Derek in episode four of the podcast. We went out ice fishing with him. That's when we cooked the uh, the meals out there in the Boundary Waters on Duncan Lake and the omelet in a bag. The omelet in a bag and the uh, uh, articulate comparisons of the different meals in the wilderness was a memorable experience. Yeah, it was. That was awesome out there in a snowstorm in March. And big thank you to them and a big thank you to all of our listeners Uh, We hope you're enjoying the podcast, and uh, please continue to send us your feedback and uh, like us on your podcast platforms. Absolutely. We're rolling into December. It's right around the corner, the holiday season. we got some fun stuff planned for episode 12, and once that happens, it means episode 13, which is one full year of podcasting right here on the WTIP Boundary Waters Podcast. I just sing when I paddle, feeling not thinking if the strokes are true. We're gonna get through to the other side. Out in the night, the waves beat the shore. You can hear them pounding, you can hear them roar. Rock me in my dreams You can roll me Rock me in my dreams So I like to sing I love to dance I play the fool if I got the chance All around the campfire